there. You're listening to the Collective Church Podcast, recorded live at Collective Church in Roanoke, Texas, with co-lead pastors Courtney Clark and Megan Lawton. Enjoy the sermon. So I'm going to pray and then we'll get started. Um, We're going to be continuing our Jesus and Nonviolence series from last week. Um, God, just thank you that we're able to come here this morning um, and just uh, find community together. I just pray that um, people go into this week and they can find a sense of peace and what feels like chaos kind of all around us. Um, uh, Just be with us this morning as uh, we kind of move through uh, kind of a heavy topic. In your name, amen. Okay, good morning. Um, You survived last week and you made it back and I'm glad that you did. Uh, we had a really heavy conversation last week, um, for those of you who were here. After the service, we kind of did it. We talked about um, the shootings that have been happening all over, uh, and then we did a deep dive discussion afterwards and just kind of were honest with each other and vulnerable. Um, and it was really encouraging to just kind of hear some of your thoughts and kind of walk through that together. So again, we're gonna be talking about Jesus and nonviolence this morning. Uh, This is kind of a part three of a series. I'm not sure exactly how long it's gonna go. We'll find out. Um, We're doing it again next week (laughs) and probably the week after that, and then we'll see what happens. Um, So we started this, um, I don't even remember when the first one was. It was about a month ago, I guess. Jesus and nonviolence? Jesus and nonviolence. Did you start that last week? No, it was when I talked about um, the Sermon on the Mount the first time before Chris. I need to update the website. <laughs> so, there you go. We, uh, this is part three. I just existed a whole, whole week in my brain. Um, no. So, this is part three, sort of, um, of a series that wasn't supposed to be a series. It was just supposed to be a one-off. Um, and then with everything happening, we were supposed to talk about parables, and I just couldn't talk about parables. I needed to talk about Jesus, um, and I needed to kind of get some of this stuff that's been floating my brain out of my brain and share it with all of you. Um, so that's where we are. <laughs> so we're on part three. <laughs> um, so the first week when we, we started and we talked about um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 42, um, and we discussed this passage kind of in depth and talking about how it doesn't necessarily mean what we think it means. Um, a lot of times this passages used to kind of urge that we be passive and just sit back and take violence or take abuse. Um, And that's not what Jesus is calling for. So we talked about that Jesus is actually urging kind of more malicious compliance (laughs) than passivity and um, kind of what that looks like and the creativity that comes with living that as a way of life. And we called this the third way. And then last week we talked about loving your enemy in the process and recognizing their humanity as much as you want them to recognize your own humanity. Um, And we used the next few verses, verses 43 through 44. And throughout the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, there's this key theme of peace. Um, Obviously, we've talked about the last couple of verses that um, that's the whole overarching goal, right? Is when you allow someone to slap you on the other cheek or when they slap you on the cheek, you offer the other one. The goal is peace. Um, The goal for the whole Sermon on the Mount, I would say, just the theme there is peace. And that starts in the very beginning. Um, And chapter five, verse nine states that, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And kind of all around us, we see Christians and Christian nations that use Jesus as a means to conquer. 
and to take over and to other entire groups of people, entire races of people, entire ideas of thought. It's other, it's different, it's not good enough. We're gonna just kind of eliminate that. But here it's saying, blessed are the peacemakers. And I guess you could argue that by eliminating all the people that are asking questions, that's making peace <laughs> because there's no more questions. Um, but I don't think that that's the kind of peace that Jesus was talking about. Um, he's not wanting silence or compliance, right? He's wanting nonviolence. He's wanting peace for everybody. He's wanting a whole new way of life. In fact, the very next verse kind of flips that whole idea on its head. In verse 10, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. So if we're wanting, if we're saying that peace means no one asks questions, no one pushes back, and then immediately saying that blessed are the persecuted, for they are the kingdom of God, that doesn't really line up. Jesus here is aligning himself and all of his followers with the oppressed, with anyone who's ever been marginalized, anyone who's ever felt othered by Christians, <laughs> by entire nations, um, by the Jewish citizens that Jesus primarily was speaking to would have felt this oppression from Rome. They would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. They lived persecution as a way of life. He's looking for something entirely new. He's not wanting to replace Rome with the Jews or with Israel. He's wanting to just eliminate power imbalance altogether. Um, it's one thing to change positions of power over to the oppressed, but it's something entirely new to say, no, we're gonna, we're gonna provide a new structure where everybody works together. There's equality, there's community, there's building up of our lives together for the sake of peace, for the sake of one another, rather than just trying to advance yourself, trying to gain more money, trying to gain more power, gain more status. I would argue that this is the way that it was in the beginning, in Eden, um, when Adam and Eve, and that it, there was community, there was togetherness. God and Adam and Eve, they were together, they were working together to grow the land, to feed themselves. It was community, it was equality. And Jesus lived and taught this way, what we've been calling the third way. Um, and this is actually named this by, by author and theologian um, Walter Wink. He's a professor at, um, now I can't remember, Auburn, uh, a professor of theology. And we talked extensively about this idea last week of the third way. Um, and it, like I said, it provoked a really interesting conversation. And hearing your thoughts on these ideas and just kind of what's going on in the world has been encouraging and it's helped bring back some hope for me um, in a time when it feels like hope is really hard to hold on to <laughs> um, and I'm just kind of like grasping for straws. So just kind of hearing thoughts from all of you was really encouraging. Um, and it just, there's just so much fighting, so much questioning and division on both sides. Um, and that division is honestly gonna be the death of democracy if we don't start fighting back, um, if we don't start building community and learning to love one another and work together. At the end of our discussion last week, um, I think we all kind of agreed, no matter where we fall on some of these issues, we all agreed that the system is messed up. Um, things are broken and uh, we need better. And it kind of feels a little discouraging because it seems like Jesus was fighting the same fight for better, for different thousands of years ago, and here we are still having the same fight. Um, but I think that that's what we're being urged to do. And it's to just fight for better. Find a place where people aren't othered and live that, be that, breathe that, and hope for the change in the others around us that aren't that yet. 
and know that they can get there. We got there and they have the potential to get there as well. But even when we're fighting violence with nonviolence, like we've been talking about, there's still risk involved, right? And namely of which is this kind of self-righteousness that inadvertently happens when we're fighting back against something. There's something in us that's like, immediately goes to, well, I'm better than them because I can, I've figured this out, I've seen this, and they, they haven't. So we're othering them kind of unintentionally, but we're othering them by saying that they haven't made it, they haven't figured it out, they're not as enlightened as me, they're not as progressive as me, they're not as open-minded, or whatever, fill in the blank, as me, right? And when we do this, we forget that we were once there. I know for myself, I have come a long way, and some of the things that I blatantly am against now, I used to believe, I used to, in a sense, advocate for, or at least not, not fight against, right? Um, so we forget that our own growth, and we forget the potential of the growth and the people that we're othering. Um, and then we also forget that one day we're gonna look back and be fighting against some of the things that are in us right now. We're gonna be fighting against the growth that hasn't happened in us, because that's how growth works. We're constantly changing. If you can't look back five years ago and say, oh my gosh, why did I think that? Why did I say that? Why did I believe that? You haven't grown. So my hope is that all of us can look back and be like, oh my gosh, why did I say that? Or, oh my gosh, why did I think that? Um, but so if we're gonna see that in ourselves, we have to remember that, we, that other people, we have to give them the grace and provide them the opportunity and the space to do that for themselves as well. And I think it's important here that um, we, are, we recognize this, the capability for evil in ourselves. Um, the evil that we once had, the evil that we're still holding and we haven't recognized yet, the evil that we're still working through. And there's this kind of innate sense in all of us um, of darkness. There's all this, this place in us that I think we don't want to recognize that immediately jumps to, I'm better than them that puts people in categories, whether it be because we're afraid that we don't want to be like them, we're afraid that we, you know, we distance ourselves, um, or maybe we genuinely think that we are better than them. Um, you know, wha whatever it may be, there's, there's this place in us, this darkness that we're all capable of. And Christian theology calls this the fall or original sin. Judaism calls this an evil impulse. Uh, and whatever you want to call it, there seems to be this a universal sense that no matter your religion or your origin, there's capability and evil of evil in all of us. Sometimes it's small, sometimes it's large, sometimes it's kind of back and forth. <laughs> um, it's this kind of like fluid movement. And I'll be honest, um, these ideas can be triggering. Uh, they're triggering for me to hear the idea, the words original sin or inherent evil um, makes me want to gag. <laughs> like I hate that terminology. I hate that idea. Um, I have so many stories of that idea being used to manipulate me, uh, to abuse me, um, and I know so many of you have that same idea. So I, d I don't want you to hear me saying that we're all inherently evil and there's like no hope for us. Uh, don't hear me saying that. Um, even, so from the very beginning, God called his creation good. And seven times in Genesis 1, he said, it is good. After he created everything, he said, it is good. After he created Adam, he said it was good. After he created Eve, he said it was good. So from the beginning, we have been called good. So I don't think that there is an inherent evil. God wouldn't have called us good after creating us if we were inherently evil. <coughs> and 
I think the fall, uh, as Christians would call it, wasn't this like buy out to be evil and like ruin humanity for the rest of forever. I think it was just kind of in a sense opening a door to the potential for both. Is we, they, Adam and Eve and God were living and existing in community and one with each other. And then after the fall, there was division and there was kind of angst amongst Adam, amongst Eve and the relationship with God. And it, it provided this potential for there to be both. So um, my sermon today is not on inherent evil or inherent good. There, if you want to kind of do some of a deep dive on that, we have a sermon in our podcast feed from Janiel Schroyer from years ago. Maybe 2019, Something like that. It was pre-pandemic um, that we could probably pull up and kind of add in somewhere if we need to. Yeah. Um, if you want to do that, you can look that up on our podcast feed by Danielle Schroer. Um, it's called Original Blessing is the title of her sermon. She also has a book titled by the same thing where she goes in like um, very heavy on this idea of original blessing and that we are good. Um, it was a really healing book for me. So if you're struggling with your own kind of pain and trauma from this idea, I suggest that you pick that book up. So I, while I say we're not inherently evil, uh, and we're called good by God, it's really important for us to recognize the ability in ourselves um, to be capable of evil, to be capable of hate, to be capable of othering. And I think we're being naive if we don't acknowledge that that exists in us. Um, but merely acknowledging its existence is also not quite enough. So um, AA is uh, Alcoholics Anonymous as a 12-step program. And the first step is acknowledging that alcohol is a problem for you, right? And so there's 11 other steps that follow after. And I think when just acknowledging that this is capable in us, this is an ability in us, isn't the end. It has to be something that we're continually working on, we're continually recognizing and continually willing to grow in and to say, like, I was wrong. I, um, I othered that person, I hated that person, or I did this thing and it was awful and I, I'm sorry. I think there's some beauty in recognizing our own pain that we cause uh, in ourselves and in the people around us. And I think most importantly, I think we have to practice grace for ourselves um, and recognize the grace that God's giving us. God is giving us space to grow and to change. And we should give ourselves that space to grow and to change. We shouldn't shame ourselves into being better. That doesn't work. It's been proven that shame will, yes, stop the behavior in the moment, but does actually nothing in the long term, right? So for me, uh, one thing that I like have been actively working on is not using um, to, to use gender neutral pronouns um, just kind of as I approach people and not saying things like just assuming that all teachers are female or just assuming that all construction workers are male um, or when I'm reading books to my kids and they gender the tractor in the book just using they instead of she or her or whatever it is um, just things like that and I have a tendency to shame myself when I mess up and that doesn't do me any good. That's actually probably prolonging the issue because now I have this like fear in the back of my mind that I'm always gonna get it wrong. Um, and there's something, in, something good in saying, oh, oops, sorry, let me change that, right? And I think that people will have grace on us more if we have grace on ourselves. And we, re we acknowledge like, I messed that one up, my bad. So I think it takes the same thing with recognizing the evil in ourselves, whatever that may be. Um, wherever that may fall for you. And uh, so author Shelley Douglas 
actually says it this way. Says, she says, we don't want to have to change our lives to bring about justice. The hardest moment comes when our own internal oppressor meets the outside reality that it supports. It's not out there, but in me, that the oppressor must die. So when we're fighting back against oppression and systems of power, we have to also fight the oppressor in ourselves. And for most people, this is asking a lot. It's one thing to be an advocate for groups that are in a minority, and it's something else to work on personal growth. It's one thing to say that you're pro-life or pro-choice or pro-LGBTQ, whatever. Um, and it's something else entirely to recognize your own bias toward those groups or to the people that make those decisions. Um, we can all become more of who we were meant to be if we're willing to acknowledge the potential for both in us and fight the evil outside as well as inside. We can all participate in bringing heaven to earth now by bringing that, that grace, that peace in ourselves and then sharing it and living it out with others. It's not just for the people around us, it's for us too. And while fighting our own inner demons, if you will, is painful, this way of living, we find freedom. There's freedom in growth. There's freedom in living in the third way. It, it, living in the third way and choosing to grow as a human isn't required to be valuable, isn't required to be loved or to be considered worthy of existence. Just by existing, you are loved, you are valuable, you are worthy. You're loved by God, absolutely, wholeheartedly, just because you exist. So living in this way, this third way, and choosing to grow yourself isn't required for any of those things. But rather, I would say, and Chris actually talked about this, it's kind of the other way around. Um, so we're worthy of love of God and worthy of being loved because we exist. And then we live and actively pursue personal growth to bring freedom from oppression to ourselves and to the others around us. This isn't a path to goodness or a path to salvation, as some might call it. Rather, it's something that happens when we're able to live in the freedom of trusting and knowing that goodness. The faithfulness of God is greater than anything. Even the oppression and the darkness that we face in the world or in ourselves, even the hatred we experience or the hatred that we give. So in this sense, the third way isn't the goal. The goal here is to know and to feel the love of God and to be begin to live and share it with everyone that we come across, with everybody that we encounter. Or as we've talked about here, the goal is to participate in bringing heaven to earth now. And we do that when we seek goodness, when we feel the grace and the peace of the love of God, so much so that it just becomes a part of us. We're not trying to be good, not trying to grow, not trying to live in the third way so that we can feel the grace and the peace. Rather, we feel the grace and the peace and it pushes us towards living, towards growth. It's the other way around, right? There's true freedom in not doing to earn, not living grace and peace to gain the right to feel it. You have to embrace it so much that you experience its depths and then you just begin to be it, that it just becomes a part of who you are and it flows out of you onto the others that you come around. That's how we bring heaven to earth now. In 1986, dictator Ferdinand Marcos um, had a 20 year reign in the Philippines. Um, 
1986 that reign ended and democracy was restored through nonviolent protest. Um, this is just one version of nonviolent protest that was su successful. Um, and we can talk about how that's on the line now, but you know, that's not important. <laughs> as far as this is concerned, um, that nonviolent protest worked and um, they were able to restore democracy in the Philippines. Um, after that nonviolent revolution, Bishop Francisco Claver um, wrote this. He said, we choose nonviolence not merely as a strategy for the attaining of the ends of justice, casting it aside if it doesn't work. We choose it as an end in itself, but because we believe it is the way Christ himself struggled for justice. Leaders of nonviolent revolution all over the world look to Jesus as an example of how to do this. We've talked about Martin Luther King, we've talked about Gandhi, we've talked about Nelson Mandela, we're talking about the Philippines here. It works. It has worked. Here, it's worked all over the world. And every single one of these leaders has something in common. They look to Jesus. Whether they're Christian or not, they look to Jesus as an example of how to do this, of how to live it. And one thing that they all have in common is Jesus' stance with the oppressed against power and recognizing the importance of the cross. Um, growing up in evangelicalism, uh, the cross was taught as something that Jesus took on to kind of nullify, nullify my individual sin. Um, it was something that I was bad, and Jesus had to take on all of my bad so that I could go to heaven one day. And I think if we look at the life of Jesus, and specifically if we look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus didn't live for that individualism. That wasn't a part of Jesus' culture. That wasn't a part of who Jesus was. I think Jesus taking on the cross is something a lot larger than just like saving me from myself, um, than that individual mindset. And I think Jesus didn't suffer violence because he was a failed insurrectionist. Remember that um, all of his followers kind of expected him to overthrow Rome and become their new king. And so a lot of people after he was crucified thought that his revolution failed. Um, but I don't think the cross was a failure. I think. Um, it was a victory. Um, Jesus suffered in this way because he preferred to be at the hand of violence and oppression rather than to be the cause of it. When they were beating him to death, he could have fought back. Absolutely, he could have. But he didn't. He didn't want to be the violence that he taught against his whole entire life, his whole entire ministry. He fought against that violence. And up until his last dying breath, Evil is like energy, um, and the laws of energy state that energy can't be created or destroyed. So once the energy of evil and hate has been directed, it can't be stopped. It can only change form, meaning that someone or something has to absorb it. So um, there's a poet and theologian named Charles Williams who has explained this idea, saying that Jesus' way intentionally evokes violence and oppression of an oppressive system, using its own momentum to throw it. And if that evil is to be deflected or transformed, something or someone has to suffer the impact, which is where Jesus and the cross come in. Someone had to take it on, take on the violence, take on the evil, had to absorb it so that it could change. And again, yes, here we are still fighting the same fight, but I think because of Jesus, because Jesus suffered and absorbed the violence, it propelled generations of people to live in this way, to live in nonviolence, and to see the potential for it to work. 
if Jesus hadn't taught this, hadn't lived this, hadn't absorbed all of the violence on the cross, would we have had Martin Luther King? Would we have had Gandhi? Would we have had Nelson Mandela? Would we have had all of these other stories of places where nonviolence worked, where systems of oppression were overthrown and democracy, democracy was restored, where equality and community thrived? Someone had to take it on to change it. What could the world look like if all of us chose to live in this way? Jesus gave us example after example of what it was like to live in community, where everyone had what they need. He told stories or parables. Um, like I said, we weren't going to talk about, and we'll talk about a little bit. Um, he told par parables of what the kingdom was like. All of his, not all of them, but a lot of his parables start with, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he tells a story. And all of these stories are about community and building grace and peace together. And if we, and then he lived, he absorbed all of the evil on the cross. Not individual sin, not our own mistakes or our downfalls, but the evil of the whole system from the top all the way down. It wasn't an individual absorb the evil to nullify it, to make you a better person. It was collective. And I think seeing the cross in through a, a lens of community rather than individualism changes the whole entire thing. It gives it so much more power. The cross wasn't a failure of Jesus' insurrection. It was the whole point. He took the third way all the way to the end. Dying in this way is proof that death isn't the greatest evil that one can suffer. Even though I would argue it was one of the most evil, violent murders um, in history. But death wasn't the ultimate evil. Jesus was willing to suffer a brutal, painful death so that the oppressed, the marginalized, even the oppressor, could finally live in freedom, away from systems of power, away from systems that afflict suffering on anyone that comes in its path. Whether you're one being oppressed or the one doing the oppressing, I would say everyone suffers in a system like that. Walter Wink said in his book, Jesus and Nonviolence, I can't really be open to the call of God in a situation of oppression if the one thing I have excluded as an option is my own suffering and my own death. So I think when we're choosing to live in the third way and choosing growth, we have to realize the potential for our own suffering. Um, and that's terrifying. Um, but we find freedom. We find freedom to go about living in the third way, um, even if it means that we might suffer, because it's not about us. It's about the whole, making this a better place for myself, making this a better place for you, making this a better place for my children and my children's children. And if that means that Jesus has to suffer and die so that the world can be better, so that he can absorb all of the violence, all of the hate, all of the pain, I think that was the whole point. And we've talked a lot about how the third way doesn't come naturally. Uh, we're kind of, not kind of, we are conditioned, like it's in our bones, it's how our brain works, to operate in fight or flight. And living in the third way requires training, it requires practice, patience with ourselves, creativity, 
recognizing that we need to change ourselves. It requires community, like we talked about last week. And it also requires risk, the risk of suffering for the sake of creating a better world, which is why we have to do it together. Because when we suffer alone for the sake of making a better life for ourselves, it's really easy to just become the violence. It's really easy to give it to give up. Um, what's the point if you're doing it alone, if you're doing it for yourself, if you have no one to walk by your side? You lose hope. You allow the evil and the darkness to consume you so much that you just become it. Again, Walter Wink says that the reign of God is already in the process of arriving when we choose means consistent with its arrival. He's saying here that if we can live it and be it, then it's already on its way. If we're fighting violence with violence in hopes to create a better world, that's, we're just creating more violence. Um, if you say that the means justify the ends and you kill people for killing people and then once everyone that you disagree with is dead, you say, okay, we're not going to kill people anymore. That's not going to work. <laughs> that's not going to fly with most people, right? So you have to be the example. You have to live in nonviolence. You have to operate in this way. You have to choose the third way every single day, every single time, and every encounter because that means that the kingdom is already here. The goodness is already here. And we're pulling in more of it. We're ushering in grace and peace everywhere we go. The power of the Holy Spirit is a challenge to transcend the present order and win victories, no matter how large or how small they might be. With every victory, we usher in the kingdom and claim a little stake of grace and peace where we are. And this requires courage as you choose willingly to enter into a way of life that could invite suffering, as you choose to absorb evil with your body rather than to play into the endless cycle of hate. Um, we're gonna take communion. And I think when we take communion, this is what we're celebrating. It's the way of Jesus, the breaking of his body and the pouring out of his blood to absorb the hatred so that a new way can be created, so that the kingdom can be brought into the here and now. It's a reminder of all of the things that he suffered so that we could live in a better, a better world, in a better way. This has been the Collective Church Podcast. We post episodes every week on Sundays. If you're interested in supporting our church, you can give at collectivechurch.net slash give. I hope you enjoyed listening.